Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. This week, you guys are stuck with me again, after two weeks of Kim killing it. On that note, I am humbled and exceedingly grateful for all of the great reviews we've been receiving, and the financial support for the show we've received on our Patreon page, details of which are available in the show notes. It really means the world, and so I just wanted to highlight some reviews. Greg GTX writes that he's thankful. I'm so thankful for the podcast. I'd even pay for it. No frills, no fuss. Just keeping you up to date on immigration decisions. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Greg GTX. Brooklyn78704 writes that he never misses a week, and he's so grateful for the podcast. I find all the updates invaluable, even the ones outside of my circuit, as Kevin offers great arguments to make in my own cases. Keep up the awesome work. Thank you, Brooklyn78704. And finally, Matt Person, quite the last name, writes that this is the best practical law podcast ever. I have sent this to several friends and even added a link on my website. It is so good. I really appreciate that, Matt Person. Thank you very, very much. And with that, recorded in San Diego, California, onto the show, where we've got seven cases to discuss. First, we have Rampersad v. Barr, published by the Second Circuit on August 19th, 2020. This is the podcast's first INA Section 101A43MI case, possibly the most complicated of all aggravated felonies. And it's a win. Congratulations, Mr. Raymond Fasano out of New York. Here's the facts. Mr. Rappersad has been a lawful permanent resident, or LPR, since 1987, but in 2010, he was convicted of one count of insurance fraud under New York Penal Law Section 176.20 and one count of grand larceny under New York Penal Law Section 155.30 and was ordered to pay $77,000 in restitution for both crimes. He was charged as removable for having been convicted of an aggravated felony as defined at INA Section 101A43MI which describes as an aggravated felony any conviction for an offense involving fraud or deceit in which the loss to the victim or victims exceeds $10,000. So like I said, INA section 101A43MI is kind of a complicated one. Under Supreme Court precedent, courts must apply the categorical approach to determine whether the criminal offense necessarily involves fraud or deceit, as those terms are defined at federal law. And both of those terms have specific and complicated definitions, so it gets messy. But it gets even messier because the Supreme Court has also held that to determine whether the conviction resulted in a loss of over $10,000 to the victims, 
Courts are not limited by the categorical approach, but can apply what's called the circumstance-specific approach, essentially meaning that courts can look at everything that is reliable to determine the amount of loss to victims, and are not limited merely to the text of a criminal statute or the conviction documents. So here's what happened here. The IJ and the BIA held that only Mr. Rampersad's insurance fraud conviction matched the federal definition of fraud or deceit. This is likely because grand larceny does not require fraud or deceit, but can be committed, say, by just stealing someone's car in broad daylight without tricking them. But the conviction documents in this case were unclear as to whether the $77,000 in restitution was related to the insurance fraud conviction, the grand larceny conviction, or both. And here the Second Circuit held, based on prior case law and the seminal Supreme Court case, Nijuan v. Holder, that to qualify as an INA Section 101-A43-MI aggravated felony, the $10,000 amount of loss must be specifically tied to the fraud or deceit conviction, in this case, the insurance fraud conviction. If it's not, the non-citizen is not removable. And because DHS has the burden to establish removability by clear and convincing evidence, confusion will win the day for the non-citizen. And that's what happened here. Great stuff for crimmigration. Here's some more good stuff. First, a good guiding quote to remember on the $10,000 amount, relying on Nijuan. Quote, where the basis for an order of removal is the non-citizen's commission of an aggravated felony that caused a specific monetary loss, the government must establish the amount of loss by clear and convincing evidence. End quote. Remember it. And it gets even better for New York practitioners and New York cases, because as the Second Circuit notes at footnote 5, New York Penal Law section 60.274a, quote, provides that restitution awards may include losses from any offenses contained in any other accusatory instrument disposed of by any plea of guilty by the defendant to an offense, end quote. According to the Second Circuit, this may very well mean that restitution awards can relate to dismissed counts of an indictment. If they do, then any monetary loss tethered, even in part or jointly, to those dismissed counts necessarily will not satisfy INA Section 101-A43-MI, because a defendant is obviously not convicted of a dismissed count. Put another way, and although a bit more research is required, New York Penal Law Section 60.274A may completely destroy the ability of DHS to establish that the $10,000 amount is met based on a restitution order alone, where there were once multiple criminal counts alleged in a criminal indictment, some of which were dismissed. And finally, it looks like I'm not the only one who's been taking note that certain Supreme Court justices have begun to use the term non-citizen in place of the word alien. As stated at footnote 1, the Second Circuit, or some crafty Second Circuit law clerk, did too, and so this panel used the term non-citizen instead of alien. Looks like a movement may be afoot in all of these footnotes. Stay tuned. And that is Rampersad v. Barr. Sticking with the Second Circuit, we've got Moda v. Barr, published on August 17, 2020, a case about CIMTs. Mr. Moda became an LPR, 
but based on events that occurred in August 2016 and January 2017, he eventually pled guilty to two counts of felony possession of narcotics with intent to sell, in violation of Connecticut General Statute 21A-277, A1. DHS alleged that both of these counts constituted crimes involving moral turpitude, or CIMTs, and that therefore, Mr. Moda was an LPR who had been convicted of two CIMTs, making him removable under INA Section 237A2AII. The IJ and the BIA found him removable, and the Second Circuit agreed. Recall, to involve moral turpitude, a crime requires two essential elements, reprehensible conduct and a culpable mental state. Here, first the Second Circuit held that the crime had a sufficiently culpable mental state because it requires, quote, an intent to sell or dispense, end quote, or, quote, an intent to offer a narcotic. And a mens rea of intent usually cuts it for CIMTs. As to reprehensible conduct, the Second Circuit agreed with the BIA's prior precedent that illicit drug trafficking is morally reprehensible. The Second Circuit noted that even though Connecticut criminalizes the mere gifting of a narcotic to a friend under this statute, it's still a CIMT, because it would appear, quote, social harm in drug distribution is great indeed, end quote. So Mr. Mata lost his case. Not much else here, but one note on plausible future arguments. The Second Circuit does imply that a statute that criminalized mere possession would not be a CIMT. And indeed, DHS rarely, if at all, ever charges such statutes as CIMTs. So practitioners, analyze your drug offenses to mere possession crimes to avoid a CIMT finding. And that is Moda v. Barr. Next up is a monster 75-pager out of the Third Circuit, Sabita v. Attorney General, U.S. It includes not one, but two epic three-page footnotes. All three judges had their say, so we're only going to discuss the 31-page majority decision. This case is about the categorical approach, and although good for the non-citizen, it appears that none of the judges are particularly happy about the outcome probably because Ms. Sabita, an LPR, was convicted in Pennsylvania of involuntary deviate sexual intercourse with a teenage boy when she was in her 30s, in violation of 18 Pennsylvania Statute, Section 3123A7. DHS charged Ms. Sabita as removable for having been convicted of an aggravated felony as defined at INA Section 101A43A, a sexual abuse of a minor offense. The analysis requires application of the categorical approach, wherein the elements of the Pennsylvania offense are compared to the elements of the federal sexual abuse of a minor definition used at INA section 101A43A. The IJ and the BIA found a match. The Third Circuit disagreed, and here's why. In the BIA's 1999 decision Matter of Rodriguez-Rodriguez, the BIA held that the elements of the federal sexual abuse of a minor offense at 18 U.S.C. section 3509A8 properly serves as a guide to the federal definition of sexual abuse of a minor used at INA section 101A43A. The Third Circuit then deferred to Matter of Rodriguez-Rodriguez in Restrepo v. Attorney General of the U.S. 
Now, a couple of years ago, in Esquivel Quintana, the Supreme Court held that to qualify as a sexual abuse of a minor aggravated felony, the criminal statute must also require that the victim be younger than 16 years old. So turning back to Ms. Cabida's case. In the proceedings below, the BIA held that Esquivel Quintana overruled in part matter of Rodriguez Rodriguez and the Third Circuit cases relying on it and that now, statutory rape offenses are aggravated felonies, so long as the criminal statute requires that the victim be under 16, as was the case here. But that was error, says the Third Circuit. Esquivel-Quintana said nothing as to the federal definition of what constitutes a sexual abuse of a minor offense, other than it must necessarily include a victim under the age of 16. Esquivel-Quintana was an intentionally narrow holding. Matter of Rodriguez-Rodriguez's reliance on 18 U.S.C. section 3509A8 as a guide for the federal definition of sexual abuse of a minor, and the Third Circuit's Restrepo decision relying on it, remain good law, just with the addition that the age of the victim must be less than 16 years old. What's more, the Third Circuit noted that 18 U.S.C. section 3509A8 does not include a mens rea, or mental state, requirement, but that aggravated felonies almost always require one. The Third Circuit therefore looked to another similar federal statute, 18 U.S.C. section 2243, and held that while the definition of sexual abuse of a minor is guided by section 3509A8, it also includes Section 2243's added mental state of, at a minimum, a knowing state of mind as to the sexual act in question. So to recap, according to the Third Circuit, the federal sexual abuse of a minor definition used at INA Section 101A43A equals 18 U.S.C. Section 3509A8 plus a knowing mens rea requirement as to the sexual act in question plus a requirement that the victim be under the age of 16. Turning to Ms. Sabita's statute of conviction, and noting that, quote, Sabita's conduct is irrelevant, it's her conviction that counts, end quote, the Third Circuit held that her offense can be committed with a lower recklessness mental state as to the sexual act in question. Therefore, the state offense doesn't match the Third Circuit's new federal definition, and Ms. Sabita avoids an aggravated felony finding. The panel of judges is not pleased. Here are some more observations. Big case for practitioners. Cite to at any time DHS simply points to Esquivel-Quintana to argue that statutory rape offenses are per se aggravated felonies. And the holding appears to align with cases out of the Second and Seventh Circuits. This case is also great for the realistic probability approach, and I quote, Where the elements of the crime of conviction are not the same as the elements of the generic federal offense, the realistic probability inquiry is simply not meant to apply, end quote. In other words, in line with most circuits, the Third Circuit is reiterating that where the plain text of the statute is overbroad, the realistic probability test does not apply, and the non-citizen need not find a case to support his argument that the statute is applied to conduct broader than the federal offense. Just an observation, and not gonna lie, I was a bit confused how someone can recklessly violate this statute. And I'm not going to get into it here, but if you're curious, the Third Circuit explains at pages 21 to 22. 
And finally, at footnote 8, the Third Circuit teases that actually, the federal sexual abuse of a minor definition might also require a knowing mens rea as to the age of the victim, but it didn't have occasion to decide that issue here. Leave it for another day, Third Circuit practitioners. And that is Sabita v. Attorney General, U.S. Staying with the Third Circuit, we have Abdullah v. Attorney General of the U.S., published on August 20th, 2020. This is a much shorter case about motions to excuse a late-filed appeal with the BIA, and the relevant facts are quite short. Mr. Abdullah was ordered removed, and although parties only have 30 days to file a notice of appeal with the BIA, Mr. Abdullah didn't file his for 78 days through new counsel. New counsel filed what's called a motion for certification of late-filed appeal, pursuant to 8 CFR section 1003.1c, arguing that exceptional circumstances should excuse the filing deadline, namely, prior counsel's ineffective assistance and the fact that Mr. Abdullah had a legitimate claim to U.S. citizenship. The BIA denied the motion, meaning Mr. Abdullah could not file his appeal from the immigration judge's decision. The Third Circuit held that it lacked jurisdiction to review the denial of this motion because, as it is purely at the BIA's discretion to grant or deny such a motion, quote, there is no standard by which we can review the BIA's exercise of discretion, end quote. Under administrative law, this lack of standard of review means that federal courts lack jurisdiction to review the issue. This is a similar rationale employed by federal courts to hold that they lack jurisdiction to review sua sponte, motions to reopen, denials. And that's about it. Two notes. As the Third Circuit notes, the only way to obtain jurisdiction in such cases is to show that the BIA, quote, relied on an incorrect legal premise, end quote, in denying the motion and employing its discretion. So that's your federal court standard. Final interesting and absurd note, Mr. Abdullah's father became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1986 and applied for Mr. Abdullah to naturalize in 1996. The immigration services didn't decide the naturalization matter until 2009, 13 years later. Everyone seems to gloss over this, and true, it's legally irrelevant, but my God. And that is Abdullah, the Attorney General of the U.S. Moving right along, we've got a Fourth Circuit case, Argeta v. Barr, published on August 18th, 2020. This is another very short one, and I'm not going to get too deep into it because it's governed squarely by the Supreme Court's decision in Barton v. Barr the very first case discussed on the very first episode of the podcast. As a refresher, to qualify for LPR cancellation of removal, an LPR must have resided in the U.S. after being admitted in any status for seven years. However, if the LPR commits an offense that renders her inadmissible, the accrual of the seven years stops and she becomes ineligible for cancellation of removal. In Barton v. Barr, the Supreme Court held that even though LPRs in the U.S. can never actually be found inadmissible, because they've already been admitted, 
they can commit an offense that would render them inadmissible if they weren't LPRs, and that doing so during the seven years precludes them from obtaining LPR cancellation of removal. And that's what happened in this case. So, the Fourth Circuit held that the case was completely governed by Barton B. Barr and denied the petition. So we shall move on. And that is our Geta B. Barr. Next, we've got a Ninth Circuit case, Chenu v. Barr, published on August 19, 2020. This case is about derivative citizenship, and the theme of the week, aggravated felonies. Mr. Chenu entered the United States as a non-immigrant as a child, and at 15, his mother naturalized. His mother applied for him to adjust to LPR status, but immigration authorities mailed the interview notice to the wrong address, and he never appeared for his adjustment of status interview. His mother got immigration officials to reopen the matter herself years later, and in 2003, at the age of 18, Mr. Chenu became an LPR. Three years later, he was convicted of burglary in violation of California Penal Code Section 459, receipt of stolen property in violation of California Penal Code 496A, and the unlawful taking of a vehicle under California Vehicle Code Section 10851A. The immigration judge found Mr. Chenu was not a U.S. citizen, and that he was removable for having been convicted of an aggravated felony, crime of violence, as defined at INA Section 101A43F, which in turn incorporates the definition at 18 U.S.C. Section 16A and 16B. Specifically, the IJ and then the BIA held that California Penal Code Section 459 burglary is a crime of violence because it matched 18 U.S.C. Section 16b. Many of you know where this is going. Oh, how wrong you were, BIA. It's going straight to remand, because while this case was pending with the Ninth Circuit, in Sessions v. DeMaia, the Supreme Court held that 18 U.S.C. Section 16b is unconstitutionally vague. Accordingly, it doesn't exist anymore. And for good measure, Sessions v. DeMaia also involved a California Penal Code Section 459 conviction. So Mr. Chenu's removability based on that statute in this provision cannot stand. In the BIA's defense, it couldn't really have anticipated that one. And as the Ninth Circuit notes, Mr. Chenu might have problems on remand due to the receipt of stolen property conviction. As to derivative citizenship, the Ninth Circuit held that Mr. Chenu did not acquire it. First, it held that the current derivative citizenship statute, 8 U.S.C. Section 1431A, rather than the former statute, 8 U.S.C. Section 1432A, applies in this case, because only Section 1431, which came into effect in 2001, was in effect, quote, at the time of a critical event giving rise to eligibility in this case. Namely, Mr. Chenu didn't become an LPR until 2003, which was after Section 1431 came into effect. So Section 1431 is applicable to this case. And that statute requires that in order to obtain derivative citizenship, Mr. Chenu had to have obtained LPR status before reaching the age of 18. But he didn't. He became an LPR at the age of 18. The fact that Mr. Chenu didn't meet this requirement because of the address mix-up, which was really the fault of immigration officials, is unfortunately irrelevant. 
So, Mr. Shinu won, and partially lost, his case. One more note on the derivative citizenship stuff. So as always, the derivative citizenship argument is even more complicated than I described. Professor Kerry Hong out of Boston College, arguing for Mr. Chenu, wanted 8 U.S.C. section 1432, rather than 1431, to apply. Because under section 1432, the prior statute, a child derives citizenship from his parent if, at the time of the parent's naturalization, the child is, quote, residing in the United States pursuant to a lawful admission for permanent residence, or thereafter begins to reside permanently in the United States, end quote. Now, some circuits have held that this language in the prior statute equates only to status in the U.S. as an LPR, which would preclude Mr. Chenu from derivative citizenship anyway, because remember, at the time of his mother's naturalization, and while under 18, he was present in the U.S. as a non-immigrant, not as an LPR. But other circuits, namely the Second Circuit in its 2013 decision Nwazuzu v. Holder, have held that the language, quote, begins to reside permanently does not require lawful permanent resident status. It does require, however, some objective official manifestation of the child's permanent residence, end quote. So that's a much lower standard than having to obtain LPR status. And so, if Section 1432 applied in this case, and if the Ninth Circuit adopted the Nozuzu standard, Mr. Chenu is a U.S. citizen. Complicated argument. And unfortunately for Mr. Chenu, it's expressly foreclosed by the Ninth Circuit's own 2008 decision, Romero Ruiz v. Mukasey. And, anyway, as the Ninth Circuit held, Section 1431 applies in this case. Gotta love derivative citizenship. And that is Chenu v. Barr. Finally, we have Patel et al. v. U.S. Attorney General, an en banc decision out of the 11th Circuit on August 19th, 2020. And bear with me, guys, because this is a tough one. As Ira Kurzban and practically the entire KKTP firm myself included, represented Mr. Patel at the en banc petition for review stage. This one hurts. This case involves circuit court jurisdiction, and, with one sentence, false claims to citizenship. It's also an extremely complicated, wonky 86-page decision, including the dissent. Because my heart just can't handle it, I'm going to be as brief as possible, which as it turns out is not so brief. Mr. Patel was found removable and applied to adjust to LPR status in immigration court based on approved labor certification. DHS took the position that he was inadmissible and therefore ineligible to adjust to LPR status because he made a false claim to citizenship when he checked yes to the citizenship question on a Georgia driver's license application. Mr. Patel alleged that he simply made a mistake, as evidenced by the fact that he obtained prior driver's license where he did not check the yes box and that in any event, U.S. citizenship is not material to whether or not someone can get a Georgia driver's license, because non-citizens can get a Georgia driver's license too. Mr. Patel made that argument based on the presidential 2016 BIA decision, Matter of Richmond, 
In that case, the BIA held that to constitute a false claim to citizenship under immigration law, the false claim must be made with the subjective intent to obtain a purpose under immigration, federal, or state law, and also that the false claim must be material to that benefit. So, for example, even if a non-citizen falsely stated he was a U.S. citizen to obtain, say, emergency assistance after a hurricane, it likely wouldn't be material because everyone can get emergency assistance after a hurricane. Matter of Richmond is really important because there is no waiver to a false claim to U.S. citizenship. A simple checked box can bar a non-citizen from obtaining lawful status or immigrating to the United States for all time. In the first panel Patel decision, the 11th Circuit held that it doesn't matter whether or not citizenship is material to obtaining a Georgia driver's license because Matter of Richmond was wrong on that point. There is no materiality requirement under the False Claim to Citizenship statute. Devastating. Then, in like one sentence, the Patel panel held that it lacked jurisdiction to determine whether Mr. Patel knowingly made a false representation when he, as claimed, mistakenly checked the yes box on the Georgia driver's license application. Because INA section 242A2B divests federal courts of jurisdiction to review factual findings, or many other findings, related to applications for certain forms of discretionary relief, such as adjustment of status. The 11th Circuit went and bonk on the issue on its own, and Ira Kurzband and our firm ended up representing Mr. Patel at the end bonk stage. So this means that nearly all of the judges on the 11th Circuit got together in Atlanta to listen to Ira Kurzband argue the case in his beautiful Brooklyn accent. And honestly, I know I'm biased, but we won. We briefed the hell out of materiality. And our jurisdiction arguments were so convincing that oil the government attorneys, agreed with us in large part and almost in all ways dispositive to this case. But the 11th Circuit and Bank Court went a bit rogue. It rejected our arguments, OIL's arguments, and the rationale of pretty much every circuit to have addressed this issue, and held, essentially, that INA Section 242A2B bars the federal courts from reviewing any determination by an IJ or the BIA if that determination is tied to a decision to grant or deny the listed forms of discretionary relief, including adjustment of status. After this decision, when reviewing denials of any of these forms of discretionary relief listed at 242A2B, the 11th Circuit only has authority to review questions of law or constitutional claims relating to those denials. If that weren't bad enough, on the very last page of a 50-page majority decision, and in one sentence, the 11th Circuit affirmed the prior panel's decision that the false claim to citizenship provision lacks a materiality requirement. Absolutely devastating. So Mr. Patel and the entire immigration community lost. Here are some notes and practice pointers. First, and as everyone listening to this knows, elections matter. As footnote 1 makes clear, all three 11th Circuit judges who took senior status under the Trump administration chose on their own to join the Enbank panel, including Judge Choflat, who authored this opinion and the underlying panel opinion. Two of those judges' replacements were also on the panel. 
That's five judges out of the nine-judge majority. Take a couple of them and add them to the five-judge dissent, and you have an opposite decision. Second, not only does the jurisdiction of this holding apply only in the 11th Circuit, but case law in other circuits expressly contradicts this case. Also, matter of Richmond and its materiality requirement remains the law of the land, in its entirety, outside of the 11th Circuit. So don't be too worried about this case outside of the 11th Circuit. Yet. Next, and I think it's really important to administrative law just to recognize this. Before the first Patel panel, and before the en banc court, Oil argued that the false claim provision of the INA lacks a materiality requirement, in direct contradiction to matter of Richmond. But the whole purpose of Oil is to defend BIA decisions. And I don't know what authority Oil has to argue against a published BIA decision, especially as Oil routinely refers to the BIA as its client. As a federal agency itself, I think it's very interesting although maybe academic, to consider that oil violates the Administrative Procedures Act when it does not defend a BIA-published decision, absent constitutional or other concerns. Will Mr. Patel seek certiori to the Supreme Court? If I know, I'm not telling. And that is Patel v. U.S. Attorney General. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Immigration Review.